Good morning. We have quite a few questions, <clears throat> so I'll read them in English and then translate them into Thai. Ajahn Buddhadasa will respond and we'll translate that back into English. Um, we have a microphone here. If anyone, if a question is responded to and you still don't get the answer, then feel free to kind of follow up the question. But since we have plenty of questions here, there's no need to think of new ones. Since quite a large area has already been covered. Can you imagine you are the spectator at the birth of a baby? Wouldn't you be overwhelmed, excited from this occasion when a completely innocent human being enters into this world without any attachments except his very natural necessities? Or would you think of a normal process of life which leads to suffering? For us, this is just a natural, normal process of life. There's nothing strange, special, or anything like that about a baby being born. It's just something that happens naturally. Now, for someone with Buddhist understanding, this is not yet um, full birth. It's not hundred, just be, seeing a child being physically born is not the full meaning of the word birth. It's not until the senses of that child are functioning normally, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind are functioning to the degree that the child can experience the sensual world and then sense consciousness arises and then there's contact with the world and then the contact leads to vetana to feeling both positive and negative and then that leads to desire it's only when the senses of the child are functioning to the degree that there is desire it's only at that point that we say the child is is completely born. Please try to remember these six groups of things or these six levels of the stages of the mental process. First there's the inner ayatana or the inner senses, meaning the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind. And then the outer ayatana, the forms, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and mental objects. And then the six kinds of sense consciousness, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, and so on. Then contact, when the inner sense and the outer sense object, and then consciousness, when these three meet and function together, we call that contact. Then there arises the six kinds of feelings, 
feelings based on the eyes, feelings based on the ears, and so on. And then lastly, the six kinds of desire. Desire towards things seen, desire towards things heard, desire towards things smelled, and so on. Including desire towards things thought about, remembered, and so on. Please try to remember these six groups of things because within these six groups or categories there's a tremendous amount of things that we need to study and investigate. Basically all we need to know can be found in our study of these six things so please try to remember them. Mindfulness with breathing seems to encourage the use and development of controlling abilities and of the mind itself. I've heard terms like control the mind and bring the emotions under control often. It seems to me that my desire to control is the same as the inclination to cling. Does this method set up conditions for even more difficulty in learning that the mind is impermanent or being able to let go of the desire to control. The problem here, or the question here, seems to mainly be one of language, of semantics, that we understand the meanings of these words differently. If one misunderstands the meanings of these words, then it will lead to a lot of difficulty and tardiness in one's practice. However, if one understands the meaning of these words correctly, then there won't be excessive difficulty. There will just be the ordinary difficulties of practice, but it won't be so difficult that we can't practice at all. So when we use words like this, please be very careful. Already everyone has a certain degree of intelligence and wisdom as well as common sense. So then when we hear explanations about Dhamma, then those explanations are added to our, our innate intelligence and our common sense. And so then we can understand a certain amount of things already. When we use words like control, or we use words like protect, prevent, regulate, destroy, get rid of, throw away, let go, when we use words like this, it's very important to study the word itself until we understand the meaning of it, and then there won't be any difficulties. The difficulty that the questioner is speaking of will only arise if one misunderstands the meanings of these words. But as soon as one understands what is meant by, say, control or regulate, or get rid of, 
when understanding that properly, there's, there's no problem. Do we need spiritual goals in life? If so, how can we avoid becoming attached to them? We endeavor and aspire to do everything with intelligence, with wisdom. We already have some panya, some intelligence and wisdom. And so we endeavor to do everything with wisdom rather than with defilement and desire. So we can call this our spiritual goal, to do everything with intelligence and wisdom. This means everything we do, everything that wisdom tells us we must do, we do that with, with wisdom. And things that wisdom says we shouldn't do, we don't do. And what we do, we, we do only with wisdom rather than with desire and defilement. When we speak of panya or right understanding, wisdom, intelligence, we mean something that is already free of attachment because Panya is essentially the understanding that there is nothing which can be clung to as me or mine. When there's clear understanding of the fact of anatta, of not-self, then there's no possibility of desire, attachment, and the defilements interfering with what we're doing or with this goal. So if we have genuine wisdom, then there's no problem. Now, in some languages, there's a, there's a word for wisdom which is correct, and then there's also a word for a kind of twisted or crooked, deceptive, decept deceitful kind of understanding or intelligence. In English, we might distinguish between intelligence and cleverness or craftiness. For example, the kind that's used by the psychologists who make the advertising on TV. You can call that intelligence, but it's a crooked, dishonest kind of intelligence used to deceive people. And so, in the same way, we need to distinguish between genuine wisdom and false, crooked wisdom. And if what we do is with genuine wisdom, then there's, there's no problem. We just investigate. We just use that wisdom to continually investigate and examine everything we do. Does Buddhism believe that we're born without a self or soul? <clears throat> In the understanding of Buddha Dhamma, the feeling that there is a self or soul doesn't happen until there is desire. 
it's only through desire that this this sense or concept of self or soul arises. And so when a baby is born, it isn't until after there is desire. And when we say desire here, we don't mean the natural instincts of the child for food and things. That's not yet desire. But it's only later when there is desire in the mind of that infant that there will be attachment to a sense of me and mine. It's only then that there starts to, that this feeling of there being a self and soul is created. And then it grows until we, we believe in it so firmly that we can't see anything else. So it's through this process of, in Buddhism it's very clear that when we're born, we're not born with some self or soul that comes from a previous life. That's a Hindu teaching. Please distinguish very carefully between Buddhism and Hinduism. There are many scholars in the West who mix the two up, which is quite irresponsible and destructive. Hindu teachings speak of some eternal soul that wanders from life to life, that reincarnates or whatever. That's their understanding. The Buddhist understanding is there is no such thing. There is no higher self or true soul or any of that that passes from one life on to the next. Whichever one you agree with is up to you, but please don't confuse the two. It's to be very unfair. So please be aware that when this feeling or belief of self, of soul, has arisen in your own mind, notice that when the self appears in your mind, that's the meaning of birth. The self has been born. Dependent origination has taken one more spin because of desire and attachment this self is once again born in the mind and once it's now for the baby when desire first arises then this spins once and once it's spun once it starts to spin again and again and again as long as there is ignorance and so be aware of every time this self or soul is born in the mind. In Buddhism, this self or soul is only a feeling, is only an illusion that occurs in our mind due to desire and ignorance. In other religions, the self or soul may be some eternal substance or whatever. Please understand the difference between the Buddhist understanding of self and other understandings of self. The Buddhist understanding is that everything that seems to be self is really not self. Because we are born with, we are, because we are born ignorant, because we are born with incomplete understanding 
then our life is not peaceful. And it's because our life is not peaceful that we must seek peace. And the way to seek peace is to get rid of that ignorance. If we eliminate the ignorance that is the basic cause of the lack of peace in our lives, then there will be peace. No matter what all the different things that we get born out of, in Buddhism, we start with the issue or problem of dukkha. And then we see where dukkha comes from. And then we deal with that cause of dukkha. In Buddhism, the understanding is that our dukkha comes from ignorance. So it's necessary to get rid of that ignorance, to get free from it. When this When the speakers talk of self, it seems often to be a physical self. Do you see the self and soul as the same thing? <clears throat> Whether the words self and soul refer to the same thing or not depends on the language we use and the meanings we give to these words. You can define them however you want. Now this, we can take physical things as being the self. For example, when we attach to the body aggregate as being self. But equally, we can take mental things as being self. For example, when we cling to the feeling aggregate or the perception aggregate, the thought aggregate, and the consciousness aggregate. So it also is very common that we cling to mental things as being me, as being mine. But be careful, don't let the mind get tricked into attaching to any of these aggregates as being self or as belonging to self. Don't fall into the trap of taking the body aggregate or the feelings, perceptions, thoughts and consciousness aggregates as being self. For the people who speak of a soul, of an eternal soul of some sort, that's up to them and their beliefs. We, however, do not speak in that way. In Buddhism, the word nature is very broad. It includes everything. In Buddhism, there isn't anything that isn't nature. But this word soul or self, these are just concoctions of the mind. These are just words, ideas, and illusions concocted by the mind. Nature includes everything. It's far more than these little concoctions, little creations of our mind. If there is no self, and if I am nothing more than the five material aggregates, 
Excuse me, there are not five material, one material and four immaterial. If I am nothing more than the five aggregates, how can there be free will? What is it that does the willing? This is a little hard to translate because in Buddhism we don't have the term free will. This is a word that comes out of Western thought that believes in self, but I'll do my best to translate. Our understanding is that the concept of self as well as the concept of soul is just momentary stupidity. It's just when the mind is temporarily stupid and then it thinks in this egoistic way. When the mind is free of this, these momentary stupidities, then it just acts, it just responds to life. When the mind is free of those momentary idiocies, then it is free of dukkha and can just act in the correct, healthy way. society we show gratefulness in many different ways, giving away presents, saying thank you, etc. Often this is only a show to make other people like you. How can I show gratefulness mindfully? It's important to remember and always be aware that there are many people in this world who live by self. There are many of the ordinary worldly people who live life and understand everything in terms of self. People who are unable to understand and recognize the fact that everything is in fact not self. There are many of these people and for them it is necessary that there are customs, traditions, manners, and all these kind of things so that people who are living according to self can get along in the most peaceful and harmonious way. The Buddha had to deal with these kind of people all the time. And so he often spoke in terms of self. He spoke in very ordinary ways. That if one's not careful sounds like he's saying there is a self. But this was just speaking in the appropriate way to certain groups of people. But in the Buddha's mind there was no sense or belief or thoughts about self. He had to speak in terms of self to communicate with ordinary people. But he didn't actually feel that way or experience life that way in his mind. Now there are some people who, who live according to the principle of not-self. There are people who don't base everything in self, who don't understand everything in terms of self. But for those who still need 
or unable to let go of this belief in self, then they need customs and manners and things so that they can live more unselfishly. And then as they evolve to the point where they can get free of this self-illusion. So one should merely practice according to the ethics, customs, and traditions of the society and community in which one is. The right way to, to show gratefulness, for example, it depends on the community you're in. Just do things according to the customs and manners of the people who still have self, who still live according to self. If you follow their customs and manners, then you, you won't have any problems. And since and for those of us who are still just ordinary people, who aren't yet arahants, who aren't free of this illusion of self yet, then it's quite ordinary for us to just learn to follow the customs and manners of our community, of our society. However, the arahant, when, when there is arahantship, then one need not say anything, or one can if one wishes. The Arahant doesn't have to do any of these things, but the Arahant is able to speak and act according to the customs and beliefs and all that of a society where most of the people are still clinging to self. But for the Arahant, there's, there's none of this sense of self. The mind is untainted by this belief in self, even though sometimes speaking using the ordinary language of self. To put this in very simple terms, as long as we still have this self, as, still we're, as long as we're still hanging on to self, then make it a better and better self, a healthier and more harmless self until you get to that point where it's the best possible self and there's no way to develop further except to let go of all self. Is teaching people to let go of wanting because it will lead to dukkha a way of making them fearful, a way of dissuading people to live their life as they want, ultimately a way of controlling people and suppressing the masses. This is a method of helping people to be more intelligent and wise, of raising their status, especially their spiritual level. Now, at first, people may be somewhat frightened about dukkha, about suffering. But the point is then for them to do something about suffering. 
instead of just to stay trapped within their fear. It's natural that there may be some fear once people start to recognize the magnitude of suffering. But the point is to get free of that suffering, which means to get free of the fear. If one stays afraid, one will remain stupid and will not evolve any further. As long as, are you enlightened? Are you a Buddha? If the answer is no, or neither yes or no, then must one wait until one is dead before others make the judgment. If one pronounced oneself to be Buddha, would that be egoistic and therefore prove one is not enlightened? How could those who are not enlightened ever be able to decide or judge whether another being, living or dead, is enlightened? Whether or not I am fully awakened or so-called enlightened or not is a personal matter and allow me to protect my right to not answer such a question. In the, the Vinaya, the training discipline that monks here follow, this, this right is supported. And so we don't feel it's appropriate to answer the first question. Regarding the matter of enlightenment, we suggest that you not waste your time worrying whether other people are enlightened or not. That's not very productive or useful. Instead, we encourage you to to observe the fact that there is a seed of Buddhahood in your own heart. The Buddha seeds are in everyone's heart. And so one ought to recognize that inherent potential in each of us to be awake, to know, and to develop that potential to allow it to grow and evolve into Buddhahood. So instead of worrying about other people, which is not a matter of wisdom and doesn't really do us any good, just focus on this Buddha seed within oneself and see whether or not it has fully awakened or not. In your book, Buddha Dhamma for Students, you speak of the activities of the Aryans, the noble ones, as opposed to the activities of ordinary lay people. You speak of dancing as the behavior of madmen, and that laughter is regarded by the noble ones as the behavior of immature children. If we could laugh less, it would be a good thing, 
and not to laugh at all would be even better. That the noble ones look upon dancing and laughter as pathetic. They see them as unnecessary. The questioner is basically quoting from one of Panajan's books. The question is, how can any human being consider laughter to be bad? Notice he never used the word bad. How can it be considered bad, pathetic, when it can bring such healing, such joy to life? Why live life without such a beautiful gift, a beautiful energy? Is life not to be lived? Why teach us to smile as the Buddha smiles at the realization of truth, of impermanence, of not-self? We should first ask ourselves whether the motivation for dancing, laughing, singing, or whatever is, is intelligent or, or foolish. We should ask ourselves if the motivation to, to dance, to sing, to laugh is intelligent, then why do something that's so tiring, that burns up, uses up so much energy? If one was truly intelligent, one could express one's feelings in a much more sim simple and less um, energy-using way. The understanding of here is that when people make a big deal out of dancing, singing, and laughing, this is because ignorance has taken over their minds. They're basically acting quite foolishly, where they're they're totally indulging in these kind of behaviors, giving themselves up to these things completely. Now, if one was intelligation, intel one's motivation was intelligent, one might express this one's feelings to some degree. But why is it necessary to jump up and down for hours to express one's happiness or joy. Now the reason in the Pali scriptures that this, this is mentioned, that, that dancing, laughing, and singing is, has the characteristics of a lunatic, is because ordinary people are not familiar with the behavior of the noble ones. Ordinary people don't spend much time or are unaware of people whose minds are on a very high level. And so ordinary people are totally ignorant of another way of behaving. Ordinary people generally don't have much control over themselves. They just act according to the way they've been conditioned. And so when their mind is under the control of ignorance, they really don't have any freedom to choose. 
they just react according to habits and conditioning. But the noble ones, people whose minds are on a much higher level, they have the freedom to not react in such habitual ways. And if there's a feeling of joy, of happiness, in contentment in their hearts, they can express it in much more simple ways. They don't really see a need to get all tired and sweaty or to stretch one's face out of into strange contortions in order to express these these feelings. So one should examine whether the motivations for these different kinds of behavior are wise or foolish. And not, by the way, when we recommend this, we're not saying just to sit around thinking about it, forming opinions. This is just the, the typical behavior of ordinary people to form opinions and to argue. But the point is to observe in real life. When you feel the desire to laugh or sing or dance, look at that and see if it's truly a peaceful, healthy impulse or whether there's some anxiety or some need to impress other people or some attachment and ego involved. The chickens like to sing. Sometimes the chickens come out and give a dance. It's stimulating. This is natural for chickens and for other animals, these kinds of stimulation. When we're stimulated like this, <clears throat> we like to sing, to dance, to laugh. But when that stimulation is missing, then we want to cry. We sit there depressed. We, don't, we no longer want to sing or dance. Sometimes we don't want to do anything. We just sit there feeling sorry for ourselves. As long as one's feeling stimulated, then one will react to that stimulation. And when that stimulation is missing, then one reacts in a different way. The question is whether this is freedom to just be pushed and pulled by stimulation or its absence. The question is, is this stimulation wise? Is it happening with vicha, with correct understanding? Or is the stimulation ignorance or avicha, incorrect understanding? Here you do not believe in reincarnation. What in Buddhism, what in the Buddhist teachings leads you to this conclusion? Also, how does it make your practice differ from those that preach reincarnation? I don't believe in reincarnation, but I believe absolutely in 
a reincarnation that's beyond reincarnation. This reincarnation in which I believe very firmly is a spiritual kind of reincarnation. It's different from the physical kind of reincarnation that people talk about. If you study, I'm talking about the reincarnation that happens within our minds every time the cycle of dependent origination spins. Every time in our life, each day, when there's a spin of dependent origination, then there is a reincarnation. But it's a reincarnation of ignorance, through ignorance of the illusion of self, of me. This is what's reincarnated. It's not a physical kind of reincarnation that I believe in. Now this belief in physical reincarnation is ancient. It occurred much before Buddhism in what is often called Brahmanism or in the Upanishadic teachings in India. And these spread to this part of Southeast Asia long before Buddhism arrived. And then since ancient times, the Thai people, as well as the Burmese and the Cambodians and other people around here, have had believed in a mixture of Hinduism and Buddhism. The so-called Buddhism of Thailand is still mixed up with the Hindu teachings. And so many ordinary people, especially the children or the people of weak intelligence, still believe, although they may call themselves Buddhists, still believe that there is some kind of physical reincarnation. But those who examine this issue very carefully will come to understand a different kind of reincarnation. Not physical, but spiritual. The kind of reincarnation that can happen to each of us many times in one day, where the illusion of self is reborn in our minds because of ignorance. So please be very careful to understand this understanding of reincarnation. Don't mix it up with the Hindu understanding. Although many Buddhists may make that mistake, please don't make it yourself. Understand the spiritual meaning of the word reincarnation. The thing that happens every time there is a spin of the process of dependent origination. The physical kind of rebirth can be very beneficial. It can make people good. It can make them behave well. But the spiritual kind of reincarnation, the understanding of it, takes, takes people beyond goodness. It, puts, it helps people transcend 
the good and then people are free they have no more doubts no more questions no more problems um, the Buddhist teaching that convinced me that there is none of this kind of physical reincarnation is the teaching of Paticca Samuppada this one teaching alone that of dependent, dependent origination if one studies the way the Buddha taught it will make it very clear that there is no such thing as physical reincarnation as for how one's practice will be different first one doesn't one can just put aside this belief in physical reincarnation one can ignore this teaching of physical reincarnation and then one simply practices to prevent the arising of this ego thinking the eyeing and mying in our minds one practices to prevent the spinning of dependent origination so that one is free of problems if Dhamma is truth and that the truth is the law of nature then what created or gave rise to the natural world the law of nature leads to the arising of everything everything arises due to the law of nature speech often causes many problems for most of us could you suggest ways that we might control our speech without seeming antisocial there are many problems with words and language because people give different meanings to words because we understand words differently we can create a lot of misunderstanding and problems out of that so as we study Dhamma a lot of what we're doing also includes the study of language one needs to be studying language along with our study of Dhamma otherwise we won't understand Dhamma very well if we just understand things according to our old opinions if we just think according to our previous knowledge then we won't have much chance to understand anything new and so we need to look carefully at the meanings that we give to words already and learn to look beyond those meanings to understand the new meanings of words this means we need to study the difference between Dhamma language and people language Dhamma language is the language that expresses the truths of Dhamma people language is the ordinary way of that people talk in the world in society so study the difference between Dhamma language and people language between shallow language and profound language between the language of fools and the language of the wise 
between the language of those who understand Dhamma and the language of those who don't understand Dhamma. If we understand the difference, we truly deeply understand the difference between Dhamma language and people language, then we won't have any more problems with words. Our problems arise because we don't really know the meanings of the words we're using. Now, the more we understand the difference between Dhamma language and people language, the more we can understand the, <clears throat> the teachings of the different religions correctly. If we read <clears throat> scriptures only on the level of people language, we'll never properly understand the meanings. If we just take literal meanings, then we'll never get to the, the true meaning of religious teachings. But when we understand Dhamma language, we can understand the correct meaning of these religious teachings. And when we can do this, we won't have any problems or see any conflict between the different religions once we can understand the words correctly and find their true meaning. Let me give one example of the word God. God can be understood both in people language and in Dhamma language. In people language, God is a personal God. In Dhamma language, there is the impersonal God. Now, both kinds of God point to the supreme thing, the highest thing. But in one level of understanding, this is seen in personal terms. On another level of understanding, it's seen in impersonal terms. We should understand both meanings of the word God, both the Dhamma language meaning and the people language meaning, and then use them appropriately. When you're in a place where you should use people language, then speak in people language. When you're in a situation where one should use Dhamma language, then use Dhamma language. In the Middle East, in Palestine, we speak in one way, in India, in another, and in China, yet another. Nature gave us a talented mind in order to be able to think. Now we have to bring the mind back to the roots to be simple again. Does it mean nature did not intend to make us as intelligent as we are? By the way, it's an assumption that we are intelligent. Some other species may not agree. First, let the, the translator would like to put up, point out that in this question there's a mixture of both what is being taught here and your own interpretation of the teaching. This has been true in many of the questions where there's not, there's a mixture of what we're saying and what you're saying. And so this often leads to some confusion. For example, we never 
we don't necessarily say this is something about going back to one's roots. And so adding these little things can lead to confusion. It helps to be careful about this, both in formulating your questions as well as trying to understand what's said here. Often because we add to what we hear, we don't really hear what is, what is being said. When the use of the word simple here does not mean stupid, less intelligent, or anything like that. When we speak of a simple mind, although in English that kind of means someone who's retarded or stupid, in Dhamma language when we speak of a simple mind, we mean the mind that isn't, we mean the mind that is more intelligent, a mind that is wise enough to not have to be constantly concocting and thinking about unnecessary things. So the simple mind is the mind that is correct, if you understand the word simple in the Dhamma meaning. It's the kind of mind that is correct. It's the correct in kind, kind of intelligence. So we're not talking about lowering our level of intelligence. What we're talking about is correcting our intelligence, letting go of the, the false intelligence that just creates problems so that there is a peaceful, simple intelligence. And the fruit of this intelligent simplicity is a mind, is a life in which there are no problems. Our ordinary intelligence makes lots of problems. But true intelligence frees us from all problems. To make this more straightforward and direct, more easy, this, when we speak of simplicity, it is neither positive nor negative. The simple mind is neither positive nor negative. It's above, beyond all positive and negative. It's the mind that is free. There is no proof for the existence of a self. What is it then that keeps the individuality of a person in one body together? This question also is mainly a problem of language. The questioner uses terms like individuality and person, which are really just synonyms for the word self. In the Hindu teachings, the word for a person is purisa. And there's another word, sata, which means being, a being. There are many other synonyms for the atman, or the atta, for self, in the Hindu teachings. So, words like individuality, person, self, soul, true self, these are all just synonyms. Now in Buddhism, it's recognized that these 
concepts about self arise from ignorance. And that once these concepts of self arise, then they lead to dukkha. Now, in Buddhism, or both Hinduism and Buddhism agree on one point, um, that if something is truly a self, then it doesn't arise and it doesn't pass away. It isn't born and it doesn't die. Both teachings agree that anything, if something is genuinely a self, it can't have any arising and any passing away. It can't change. And in Buddhism, we don't see anything. All these things in life which we take to be self, if one examines them carefully, we see that they arise and pass away, that they're constantly, that their nature is impermanent. And so you can't find a self in any of these things that we're clinging to as self. Now, if you, this approach is what we call Buddhist art. If one uses this approach of examining the selflessness of all things, then this is the most skillful and direct means for eliminating dukkha, for freeing us from the pain and hurt in our minds. If you're interested, you are most welcome to use this Buddhist art. If you're interested in art, we encourage you to try out this Buddhist art, the way to directly eliminate the problem of dukkha. In order to make this understandable to children, you can teach in the following way, that this thing people call self is merely the reaction or byproduct of things which arise and then happen naturally. There are lots of things that arise and then just happen according to their nature. And the byproduct of much of this is this sense of self, the thoughts of self. For example, it isn't until we see that there arises the concept, I see. We have to hear first for there to be the I hear. We have to smell in order to think I smell. It's only after we taste that there is the I taste. It's only when there is a physical touch that there is the I touch or I am touched. And even to think, we think before there is the thought, I think. We act before there is the sensation of, I act. All of this I, 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 all this self-business is merely a reaction or byproduct till nat to natural activities. If we explain it this way, 
children can understand. I'd like to, to follow up on this question. In Buddhism, there is one thing which we call Nibbana, which has no beginning and has no end. It isn't born, it doesn't die. It n neither arises nor passes away. And it's the only thing that Buddhism holds to be not impermanent. Yet the Buddha insisted that even this was not self. I'd like to ask Ajahn Buddhadasa about this. Okay, so regarding this question I added of, well, what about Nibbana, which neither arises nor passes away? Is that then a self? And Panajan replied, for those who have not truly experienced Nibbana, then when then they will take it to be self. Just the way that ordinary people take everything in life to be me and mine, if they think about Nibbana, then they'll, they'll take it to be self. But Nibbana, when there is true, full experience of Nibbana, in that there is nothing that arises and nothing that passes away. Nibbana is beyond all birth and death, all making and all destroying. There are none of those things in Nibbana. And so in a full realization of Nibbana, there's just no room for this creation of I thoughts and me concepts. If one thinks that Nibbana is self, then that means that another attachment has just been born. To think of Nibbana or speak of Nibbana in terms of self is a result of attachment. Now, when we try to describe Nibbana, the best response is to shut our mouth. In the Pali language, this is called apayagrita, which means ineffable or undescribable. Truly, there is nothing we can say about Nibbana. We can't really put it into words. But most people, when they try to talk about, so most people, when they try to talk about it, end up trying to make some kind of me and mine thing out of Nibbana. It helps to understand that Nibbana isn't a thing the way we think about things usually being. But since most of us try to get Nibbana or think about Nibbana as something, then this leads us into error. But in fact, Nibbana is ineffable or indescribable. You can't really say anything about it. The same is true for God. The genuine God or the true God is also ineffable, undescribable. One can't really say what, what God is. And our attempts to do so distort, distort it. So our time's up. It's past seven o'clock and you've been sitting listening very attentively for two hours.
So we'd like to thank you for your attention and for your effort. And today we'd especially like to thank you for the excellent questions. The questions today <clears throat> primarily centered on the essence of Dhamma. People weren't fooling around with um, irrelevant matters, but trying to understand the essence of Dhamma, that is anatta, not self. And so we congratulate you and thank you for this and hope that your efforts to understand anatta will continue until you run out of questions. When you don't have any more questions, that means you don't have any more problems. And that's what we're, we're hoping for all of you. And so we'll close today's talk.